Let me ask the rest of you to take your Bibles. Let's turn back to the book of Genesis. It's been a while since I've gotten to say that. Let's turn back to the book of Genesis this morning. Genesis chapter number 3. Today we finally get to turn back to this book. We've been away from it for some time. I was looking back at the calendar. The last time we actually took a step in this series of sermons was in the middle of the month of May. And as you know, we took a break from this series as we prepared for and took a trip and then returned from ministering in Hawaii. Our family did. And we told you about that last week. God did some amazing things and we still are hearing good reports. I shared Wednesday night. I'll just share briefly with all of you. I asked you last week, would you pray for these young people that God worked in? And some of them stood up in front of all their friends and confessed sin publicly and and, uh, made things right with the Lord and some were saved. And we were praying because a number of them were going back to homes where they're not going to get a lot of encouragement. Uh, Some of them, they're only only believers in their their households. Um, I got word uh, this last week as I was talking with Kevin, who was the program director, my friend that asked us to come out. And he said, man, we said, our church is hosting a vacation Bible school this week. And he said, um, the teens are coming out of the woodwork. He says, they're, they're, get, they're finding their own way to church. They're volunteering. They're, they're excited to be serving. He said, some of these kids haven't been in church in a year. And they're saying, figure out how to get us a ride. We need to be with the church. He said, we're already seeing, you know, two weeks out from camp, just the fruit of what seems to be genuine repentance and, and salvation. So uh, we're seeing markers of, of grace still. And so we praise the Lord for that. So I thank you for praying for them. Please keep praying for them. And as we hear more, we'll tell you more about it. But we we took a break from this series so that we could minister there. And God did some really neat things in the camp time we had. I do want to say a word of public thanks to uh, both Pastor Dave and Luke Beaver for their ministry of the Word while I was away. Um, Brothers and sisters, I don't want us to ever take for granted that God has blessed our church with men who love the Word and who are willing to minister the Word to us and feed us well. I, I, every time I travel, I, I, I leave with, with confidence that you're going to be well cared for, and, uh, and you were, and I just want to say a public word of thanks myself uh, to these men for their ministry and uh, to the Lord for His gifts of grace to our church. There are There are a lot of pastors I know who are fearful ever to step away, even for vacation, because they're not sure they'll come home to a church once they leave. They're not sure it's going to hold together. They're not sure that that anybody's going to be fed or that anybody will show back up after they come back. And I have to be honest with you, while there are concerns for your care while I'm away, my concerns have not been as we've traveled that there's not going to be a church to come home to or that you're not going to be well cared for while we're gone. It, it is something we thank the Lord for here and uh, we praise Him for and what He's provided for our spiritual nourishment here. So we're back to Genesis. And thus far, as we have studied in Genesis, we've covered some very foundational truth in this book. From the beginning of this study, we have seen from the opening verses of this book that God is, that God created, and that God commanded. I want you to think through something with me. We've talked about this before, but I want to remind you of kind of the progress of the ideas in the book. You see, 
Throughout the creation week, we saw recorded in chapter 1, and then some of the the, the truths of that week reiterated and told in a different way in chapter 2, we are told that God spoke and creation obeyed. God spoke and creation obeyed. God spoke and the light shone. God spoke and the planet spun into space. God spoke and the dry land appeared. God spoke and plants sprang from the soil. He spoke and living creatures flourished on the earth and in the seas. He spoke and the skies teemed with birds. He breathed and man became a living soul. We see this pattern. God speaks and it is. God speaks and creation obeys. Don't miss the significance of all of that. When you think about the pattern of the first two chapters, what you find is that God speaks and everything falls submissively into its proper place within the order that God established in the creation. And this is why at the end of chapter 1 and verse 31, we saw that God was able to look upon all that He had made and see that it all was, by His own testimony, very good. Very good. Everything was in its created order. Sadly, though, this submission of the creation to God's command did not last. In fact, back in chapter 2, we saw the clear statement of command God gave to mankind. He gave it to Adam. In Genesis 2 and verse 15 and following, we read, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That was the command. Last time we saw the way that the crafty serpent deceived and beguiled Eve. It was in the first six verses of chapter 3. So we just kind of turned the page from chapter 2 into chapter 3 and we read this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So... When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. As we studied that part of the passage, we wrestled with two main ideas last time. We saw the serpent and we saw his tactics, the serpent and his tactics There's much to learn from all that we saw there, but the one big idea I want you to remember is this. I want you to remember that though the the Creator God had revealed Himself and His will to man as the ultimate and final authority, the strategy of the deceiver was to do this, was to subvert the way God's creatures thought about and submitted to the revealed Word of God. God had made His will plain. He had commanded them, Genesis 2 said. And the way that the deceiver works in the creatures 
is to subvert the way we think about and submit to the Word of God. In fact, we said Satan hasn't had to change his tactics. Strategies are still working just fine. We all can look at one another and say, Thus saith the Lord, and we say, I know, but... That little conjunction's a problem, isn't it? I know God says, but I feel. I know God says, but I think. I know God says, but I want. I know what God says, but you don't understand my experience. The strategy is still the same. God says and we argue. God says and we excuse. God says and we justify. God says and we do our own thing and we feel fully justified in doing it. And that's exactly how the first couple fell. And we continue often to fall prey to the same strategy. Speaking about Satan's tactics, Professor Ian Duguid, we showed you this last time, said very simply this. He said, Satan is really not all that creative. He only has three strategies, a persecution, seduction, and deception. And I would like to think, you would like to think, we would stand in the time of persecution when it comes. Well, i got a question. How are you doing with seduction and deception? We think we'll stand, and we don't now. Okay, we need to understand the tactics. We need to understand what he does. In light of everything that we studied last time, we concluded at the end of that sermon that, friends, the truth is always the answer to the enemy's deception. The truth is the answer. The question is, what will you and I do with the truth, with the Word? Today we don't have a long time, but I do want to continue our study in chapter 3. And what I want to do is I want to pick up where we left off last time. So we read down through verse 6. That's what we looked at last time. I'm going to start now with verse 6. And let me read down through verse 13. I want you to see what we find next in the passage. We read this. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was, desired to, was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden." But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The, the, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. 
As you can see, there's a lot here, and as I said, we don't have a lot of time. So what I want to do is just take advantage of the time we do have with two two key ideas, two big thoughts this morning, and those thoughts are these. I want you to see, first of all, that sin causes shame. Sin causes shame. We've touched on this in the past. I want to reiterate that this morning. Sin causes shame, but secondly, that shame leads to hiding. That shame leads to hiding. So with the time we have left, let's just dig into these one at a time. First of all, sin causes shame. Sin causes shame. Let's not forget what we saw in our study of the, at the end of chapter 2. So right at the very end of chapter 2, we saw a couple of verses, verses 24 and 25. And in those verses, verse 24 laid the foundation for the way that God's people are to think about love and marriage and human sexuality. We talked about that. Verse 24 said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the text was also clear in verse 25 that the husband and his wife were unashamed in their nakedness. It's, it's almost shocking to us to read in verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They weren't ashamed. There was no shame in it. And don't miss the way that the verse 25 actually addresses two things. We talked about it before. We talked about the first, it talks first about the physical state of their bodies. It says the man and his wife were both naked, but it also talks about the emotional state of their minds. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed, right? So two things, the state of their body and the state of their minds. That's what it talks about in verse 25. And the truth of the matter is that they had no reason for shame. They had no reason for shame, even in their nakedness, friends, because the text is clear that they were still right with their maker. They were still right with each other, and they therefore had nothing, absolutely nothing to be ashamed of. So they were both naked and not ashamed. There was an innocence still about them, no knowledge of good and evil. All they knew was what? They had been made to know up till that point. But all of that changed when they chose to sin against rather than to submit to the command of God. And that's what we read in our text, verses 6 and 7 this morning. So when the woman uh, woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And then verse 7 says that eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked. You see, when man fell, everything changed. No longer were they right with their maker. No longer were they right with each other. No longer were they cloaked in innocence. Instead, they were now filled with guilt. And shame. Writing about this change, John MacArthur in his um, study Bible actually just makes this simple note about this passage. He says, The innocence noted in chapter 2 and verse 25 had been, now been replaced by guilt and shame. They were unashamed, verse 25, chapter 2, now filled with shame. And friends, that is just what sin does. This rebellion against the command of God. We've talked about this repeatedly in our series thus far. That sin is doing my own thing rather than submitting to the command of my maker. 
All through the scripture, we find this very quickly. Let me just show you some passages. The prophet Jeremiah confessed that sin and rebellion against God brings shame. In Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 13, he simply said this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. Shame comes from sin, from rebellion, from forsaking the Lord and His Word. The prophet Ezra actually vividly described the shame that he felt because of the sins of his nation. Ezra chapter 9, he is at a time of prayer. And it says in verse 5, And at the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt mounted up to the heavens. From the day of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame as it is today. This prophet, looking at his nation, was in a complete shame because of the wickedness of the people. Seems like a timely passage, does it not? In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter was moved, as you know, to tears and weeping because of the shame he felt over his betrayal of Jesus. Remember in Matthew chapter 26, the record, then Jesus said to them, verse 31, you will all fall away from me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I am raised, I will go before you to Galilee. So he says, you're going to all fall away. What does Peter say? Good old Peter. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Later that night, Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man! And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered, there's the shame. He remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. The Apostle Paul actually taught the Ephesian church that it is a a shameful thing even to speak of the sins committed by many in secret. Ephesians chapter 5, he says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. We could go on. We won't, friends. The Scriptures are abundantly clear on this. Sin causes shame. 
Rightly so. It brings guilt and shame. And in light of this reality, we need to ask a question. How do sinful people respond to the shame that comes because of their sin? What do they do? And that leads us directly to the next key idea. We said there's two this morning. First of all, sin brings or sin causes shame. But secondly, shame leads to hiding. Shame leads to hiding. Just watch how this unfolds in our passage in Genesis. In verse, uh, Genesis 3, verses 6 and following, we read this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and she ate it. There's the sin. She also gave some to her husband and he ate it. There's the sin. Then the eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked. And so what did they do? They now see it. The shame has come. What do they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So follow this. The shame of sin leads sinners to hide themselves first from each other. That's what happened in the text. They made loincloths, not to hide from God. They hid in the trees from God. They hid themselves from each other. They, they, they covered themselves. This was hiding from each other. They hide first from each other, and more importantly, they hide from God. According to the text, they sewed fig leaves together. This was to hide their nakedness from one another. And they hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. They thought, he maybe can't see me in the trees, right? So I'm going to find a place of darkness to hide. And even more than this, the, the hiding visibly was the hiding they did spiritually. Because they hid when they made excuses for their sin. Just watch how the passage unfolds, right? Verse 8, and they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man and said to him, where are you? I love this. God never asks a question for information, right? God always asks questions he knows the answers to because he knows everything. It's not as if God didn't know where Adam was. He asked the question for Adam's benefit, Right? What grace there is in this. Adam's running and God doesn't let him run. God, God goes after him. Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So he gives him a reason. I was naked and I hid myself. Verse 11, he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Okay, God the maker knows what, he, what Adam knows because he made him with that knowledge. Adam now knows something God hadn't taught him, but he got because of a tree he'd been commanded not to eat. And God says, have you, have you done what I told you not to do? Uh, pa parents, could I just say, grandparents, could I suggest that, that asking good questions of our children to bring out the truth in their hearts is the better part of wisdom? Where's the accusation from God here? Like, where's the, you did this! It so often happens in our homes, right? Ah! No, he asked questions so that the reasoning was actually worked up in their own hearts. So they, they saw, they knew, they understood. He, he's, he's asking good questions. He's softening the heart. 
Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Again, this isn't a question for information. God knows. What's the man do? Oh, yes, I confess. No. The woman that you gave me, she gave me fruit and I ate it. God turns to the woman. What is this you've done? Oh, yes, I confess, Lord, I did this. No. The serpent, the serpent, it's his fault. He deceived me. And I ate. Don't don't miss this. God graciously, he mercifully confronted their sin. He questioned them. But rather than confessing their own wrong, friends, they hid behind flimsy excuses and justifications. The man blamed the woman for tempting him. Even worse, the man blamed God for giving him the woman who could tempt him. The woman blamed the serpent. No one was willing to take personal responsibility for their own sinful choices, their own rebellious actions. No, instead they just kept hiding by passing the buck. It's someone else's fault. I only did, I only said, I only went, I only acted, I only spent, I only took, I only, I only, I only, because of them. It wasn't me. I wouldn't have done that. They made me. My situation... My spouse, my children, my parents, my boss, the weather, my poorness, my richness. That's why I do what I do. It's not me. Isn't this what we all do? We run and we hide. We duck and we cover. We try to fly under the radar. We seek to to stay out of sight. We excuse and we justify. And we prove the Scriptures right. Because the Bible is abundantly clear about the fact that sinners hide. They hide from each other. It's just easier not to be seen, not to be noticed. I think I'll just stay away for a while. They hide from God. I just give a little more money in the offering so I feel better, right? Just cover myself, you know. So a loincloth of dollar bills, that'll make it all better. Sinners hide. They don't just hide in the Old Testament. The Bible actually says this is the nature of a sinner. One of the most famous passages in all of Scripture is found in John chapter 3. We know John chapter 3 and verse 16, right? What's it say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. But keep reading. 
For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. What is the judgment? The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be Seen, exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Sinners hide. But hear me, friends. While the scriptures tell us that sinners hide, the Bible also tells us plainly that God blesses those who choose to stop hiding and instead to confess and to forsake and to repent. Just listen to the words of David, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man who, uh, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me, my strength was dried up as in the heat of summer. While I hid it, I was, I was miserable, but I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is where happiness comes from. Blessedness comes from. Consider the counsel of Solomon. Proverbs 28, verse 13. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Praise God for his mercy. John actually wrote something very similar in his first epistle. You know these words, don't you? 1 John chapter 1. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess, if we agree, we say the same thing God says about our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. During the camp week in Hawaii, I had a little boy come to me weeping one night. He's just a slight little guy, young, probably seventh grade. He says, I don't think God can forgive all my sins. And I'm looking at this little boy thinking, what could you have done? <laughs> like, we all sin, but like, what, what are you thinking is so great God can't forgive? 
As I talked with him more, I realized that this is a little boy who's grown up in a Christian home and has made an awful lot of promises to God. And he's, he's made things right with God, but he goes right back to it. And he says, he says, I say things in my heart and my head all the time that just don't please God. He can't forgive me. I just keep going back to it. He was confessing things that some of us do every day of our lives and don't even think about it. We've covered it for so long. We've excused it, justified it. And I thought, oh, this little tender-hearted boy, can God even save me? Because this is so wicked before him. Things that so many professing Christians that have gotten so used to, we don't even think about anymore. I took him to this passage and we read down through it. I remember looking at him and said, how, how many unrighteousnesses does he promise to cleanse you of? All, he said. I said, do you believe that? He said, I want to. I said, son, you've got to come to believe that. I want to call you to the same thing this morning. Do you believe that? Before we close, and we need to close, I want you to notice one more thing from this passage. Verse number seven, it says this, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. From all sin. Friends, we can't afford to miss the truth that forgiveness of and cleansing from sin only comes by the blood of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews was abundantly clear on this point. Hebrews 9, verse 22 without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. The next chapter, chapter 10, spells out the good news for all of us who are in Christ. We don't have time to read all of the verses here, but it talks about the priests who stand daily and offer sacrifices that can never take away sin. But verse 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. It is finished, he said. Verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 18, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Christ's blood cleanses from all sin. No sacrifice left to be made. When he said it is finished, he meant it. So what does that do? What does that truth do in the heart and the life of a believer? What is the result of all of this? Well, in chapter 10, you just have to keep reading that next paragraph because in verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers, since we have, what? Confidence. Not timidity, not shyness, not I hope he'll take me back. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. Friends, do you see what this passage is telling us? Sinners hide. 
They hide from each other and they hide from God. But those who are cleansed, look at this, those who are forgiven and cleansed by Christ's blood have no more reason for hiding. None. From God or from each other. That passage said, draw near to God and draw near to each other. Stop neglecting to meet together. He says, stop hiding. Stop hiding from God. Stop hiding from each other. He says, the blood of Christ cleanses us and takes away our reason for hiding. No more excuses. No more justifications. No more timidity. No more shame. Because Christ is our covering now. You see, instead of hiding from God and from each other, we are now free and encouraged to run to Christ and to hide ourselves in Him. This is why so many of the hymn writers have encouraged us to sing about this reality. You know these words, I think, from William Cushing, who wrote, Oh, safe to the rock that is higher than I. My soul in its conflicts and sorrows would fly so sinful, so weary. Thine, thine would I be. Thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. Hiding in thee, hiding in thee, thou blessed rock of ages. I'm hiding in thee. As my friend Chris Anderson put it in his familiar song, I run to Christ when plagued by shame and find my one defense. I bore God's wrath. He pleads my case. My advocate and friend. Friends, this is what we celebrate as we come to the table this morning. The goodness and the grace and the mercy of God to us in Christ. So run to Christ. Run to Christ. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. And I pray now, as we turn our attention to the table, you would work in our hearts, change our minds, be glorified by the work you do in our lives. For it's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.